0: This is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Sarah Holtz, and today a three-part program about peacemaking in LGBTQ communities. Coming out can lead to a sense of personal peace that many people spend their whole lives seeking. But coming out can sometimes bring about conflict with family, friends, and the larger society in which we live. On this month's episode of Peace Talks Radio, correspondent Sarah Holtz speaks with three individuals who came out about their sexual orientation and gender identity and found their own personal peace. They are now doing the difficult work of promoting peace and justice within and outside of their communities. Whether we're conscious of it or not, definitions of gender and sexuality surround us in daily life, from the symbols posted on restroom doors to the families we see in advertisements. The three guests on today's show represent an effort within the LGBTQ community to challenge accepted norms of gender identity and sexual orientation in order to envision a more inclusive world. Sarah introduces us to Sally Michelle Jackson who came out as a woman at the age of 58. She had to figure out how to wrap a largely new life around a personal truth that had been there all along. These days Sally is a New Orleans based trans advocate, a radio host, and she's become a bit of a local celebrity for her work in the LGBTQ community there. Sally takes over the story from here, beginning with what it was like to grow up pretending to be someone else in Fort Worth, Texas.
1: It's a great town. It wasn't a great town to grow up, you know, being different without the internet because I am considerably predated (laughs) the internet. I didn't know what, what to do because before the internet, nobody was talking about anything. The term then was transsexual, and the only time you ever heard it was the punchline of a joke, you know, or somebody talking about some depraved, deranged person that, you know, that you didn't want to be like, but that's the only thing you ever heard about it. You thought you were alone. Of course, I think it helps that it was in band with all of the fine arts people and all, because before anybody was talking about it openly, you were already exposed to a lot of the gay, lesbian, and even a little bit of the bisexual early on because something about people in the community are allowed to express themselves more through creative things, like if you're in theater or dance or music. I think part of it is environment where kind of it's the only place you could express yourself.
2: So do you think you gravitated towards music or towards the creative fields? Was that a coincidence? Or do you think that there was something expressive in that that you hadn't identified yet?
1: I think it was more the expressive part. Playing the trumpet gave me a way to express myself a little bit. And uh, I realized how angry I was for a lot of the time (laughs) because a lot of my expressions were very high and very loud. (laughs) I've gotten mellower now. I do tend to play a little more melodic solos these days, but it's uh, it's one of those things that it got me through a very rough time. So I went through in denial, just, you know, I can I can make this work. I can be who everybody else wants me to be, which is never a good way to lead your, your life. You need to be you, no matter what you are. You know, if you want to be a poet and you're, family wants you to be a doctor it's really a better idea for the patients too if you write poetry instead you know so I was in denial for basically 57 years just trying so hard to be who everybody wanted me to be and it wasn't easy and somebody said well transitioning at a later age is going to be very difficult for you because you weren't quote socialized female And what I realized after I'd started my transition was it wasn't so difficult because I didn't try to learn, uh, watch females to see how they sit, how do they want, what are their speech patterns like, for people to do all of this research and all. And basically what I did was I let go of all the stuff I was doing to try to pass as male. I don't consider myself passing now. I was passing then. I spent 57 years playing a character (laughs)
2: Soon after she began her transition, Sally found herself wanting to help others as well. She found an online support community and became a volunteer.
1: It was a transgender suicide prevention site and forums. And I had gone on the forums to get some information. I started reading the stuff with people that were basically saying goodbye and watched what the moderators were trying to do to help them. And one night... um, This is how I actually became an advocate. One night. A young man on uh, Vancouver Island, not in Vancouver, but on Vancouver Island, so he was up in the middle of the night for us. He was talking, basically saying his goodbyes to everybody because he was going to kill himself that night. And the moderator was talking to him and saying all the right things and all, but the kid wasn't connecting with him. So... I typed a message that I thought maybe he'd he'd see that. And the moderator approved it. And then he read it and he responded to me and we kept going like that. The three of us for about 20 minutes or so. And then the moderator stopped typing anything. He was just sitting there reading and approving ours so we could keep talking to each other. And about an hour or so later, he said he was really tired. He wasn't going to make any decisions tonight. He was going to think about what we've been talking about and so the moderator came on and said remember you have to give us 24 hours notice if you decide you're going to <laughs> you know and then the next morning uh, about midday he came online and said that he'd done some serious thinking last night and he realized his cat was upset because said the cat either slept in the living room or on his bed did one or the other but the cat stood in the doorway to the room staring at him all night long, never moved. He was still there the next morning when he got up, and the cat's still sitting there like this. And he goes, So I guess when you're saying that people need you and would miss you, it's really true because he realized that even his cat would be very upset if he was gone. And so we go, like, That was great. They made me a moderator within a week. And. About two months later, he'd had such a turnaround in his viewpoints and I was helping everybody else that they made him the youngest moderator that had ever been on the site at that point.
2: After relocating from Fort Worth to New Orleans, Sally found other sources of support in a few local organizations, including the New Orleans chapter of PFLAG.
1: Basically, when I went to PFLAG, I started there. I, I needed help because I needed support. You feel like you're completely alone. I had two roommates at the time and we were all three on the same journey and about the same point of the journey. So we were going outside to get more help. And during this time, there was, there's an organization called the Louisiana Trans Advocates was not in existence at this time. My two roommates had weekends free and were able to go help found that group and It didn't take very long before I really didn't need to go to PFLAG for support anymore. I didn't need to go to the LTA for support anymore because I I felt like I'd arrived where I needed to be. And that was six years ago. Uh, I never thought of it before somebody else told me that I should go to these places mentioned. And one of them is because you're an example of someone who's made it. And I said, Well, I didn't really think I was that successful. I was working in a retail store, you know. And all this is, Yes, but you're accepted there. And you you're doing a job. I worked on commission and the money didn't go down after I transitioned. People just accepted it. I was kinda of disappointed when the first guy didn't have a problem because I thought, you know, I've been dreading this for five years. The least you can do is storm out, you <laughs> know but it's just, um, you reach a point where you're, you realize that you're pretty comfortable with yourself. And when you've reached that point, it's amazing. They talk about passing, which we're not I'm not crazy about anyway, but a couple of us were talking and, um, basically the passing is when you pass to yourself when you've decided you're who you were meant to be and you're comfortable. You don't worry so much about passing and you don't have any problems with it either once i got to be me i just i feel comfortable talking to people now and then they wanted to put this voice on a radio show
2: (laughs) today p flag new orleans has a radio show called expanding the rainbow which sally co-hosts with friend and colleague josh karkabasis The low-power radio station that broadcasts the show has its own unique origin story.
1: Well, the radio station I work for is called WHIV, which are call letters that most people wouldn't have have selected. Our founder was Dr. Mark Allen Deary. He's one of the big leaders in the HIV research and treatment and all around here. He's an infectious disease specialist. He thought this would be a good platform for them, and of course... You can't really talk about diseases like HIV and STDs and all without coming up with human rights and social justice because there's problems all inter- intertwined. So he talked to a friend that knew more about him, and they, they managed to get one of the um, LP stations. And so when they asked him, he said, well, Have you thought about call letters? Because they got the list of all the ones that are already taken. And, of course, where we're located, it has to start with a W. And so he was just sitting there and goes like, do you have WHIV? And they're going, yes, we do. Why would you want it? (laughs) But basically, uh, we call it, it stands for We Honor Independent Voices. And it's very obvious when you see our programming that we do. So we have all of that going on. And they were raising funds for... Things they needed, and P Flag, our chief fundraisers, went there and decided that we could donate to to the to help them get the station going and all. And they started talking about, you know, it'd be kind of cool if we had a show. So they talked about that for a while, and station goes like, "Okay, we'll we'll give you a trial for six months I do thirty minutes." Oh, once a week on Thursday mornings. Now, Josh is the young gay man, and now he's a young gay man who's married, and I'm an older trans woman, and I'm single, and it gives us a balance when we're talking about things, because he can approach trans issues from not knowing and ask the questions that a lot of people would like to know that I don't think about because I already know those answers you know? and I do the same thing with the uh, with the gay community the parts of that that I don't understand and we get to it's a nice balance
2: and um the name for the show or maybe even the catchphrase is expanding the rainbow could you explain a little bit what that means
1: we were t- discussing what the show was going to be about and it wasn't going to be just lgbtq issues we're trying to blend into the other communities around us and we want to bring them in as well as because if you want to be included somewhere you need to include those people too so the idea was we wanted to reach out we were trying to find a way without saying reaching out for your help or anything like that and of course the rainbow flag has always been there so the idea is we want to be included in other communities And we want to make them feel welcome in ours.
2: What are some of the biggest challenges that you find in your advocacy work?
1: There aren't any real challenges when people invite you to come talk to them. But it's when you're being sent somewhere because somebody else felt they needed it. Even if they're there, it doesn't help. If the people are in the room because they were forced to be there, that's the big challenge. Because you have to win them over to listen to you in the first place. I did a training at a sheriff's department in another parish, and everybody was so receptive to everything. I was told afterwards they were there on their own time volunteering after their shifts, and the room was packed. That was easy because they came to learn because they had a transgender officer was working with them and they realized they had a larger transgender community than they thought and they wanted to know how to how to deal with them properly because they didn't want to be the problem in their department and I'm going like that was the easiest group to work with I've ever talked to because yes, tell us more You know, it's one of the things that people need to understand when you've got someone that's very different from you, there's a tendency to want to back away Because we're afraid of the unknown, okay? Well, how do you get to learn about that unknown if you just keep backing away from it? So the easiest way to find out what's going on in the LGBTQ community is to talk to somebody in the community. And most of us are willing to talk. (laughs) So it's the only way to... You have to open lines of communication. as That's the only way to avoid just the perpetual fear which then goes to hate which then goes to violence. We break that cycle early just by learning.
2: Yeah and um, in thinking about violence prevention and especially in the trans community and um, among trans women of color, violent crimes against trans women of color being so prevalent, um, what are some ways that you work to keep your communities safe?
1: Well it's gonna sound odd because it's working with the police that doesn't sound odd but it's not in it's in training them how to interact with the trans people and the trans people of color in particular because there has been a traditional fear from the transgender side of the police and then you couple that with the people of color who've always had a little bit of a disconnect with the police as well not really wonderful, loving past for both groups. And so you have to work with them. And right now, one of the beautiful things is there's um, there's a human relations commission in the mayor's office, and they have a group that's meeting with them that gives them recommendations and it's made up of LGBTQ people And most of them are of color. I've gone to a couple of the meetings and they're actually listening to what they can do to make it better because they realize that it's gonna be on their shoulders to interact correctly with the community. And the best way to get the community to interact with them is to let them know that we're really trying.
2: Community organizations throughout Louisiana have invited Sally to come speak on a variety of topics, but healthcare is among the most common.
1: We have a bad history with healthcare providers because before, particularly transsexual, before it was declassified as a mental disorder, because it was originally called gender identity disorder. So they thought psychotropic drugs, fix that. Didn't made it worse. And it was, uh, a lot of people, uh, ended up very bad shape after some of these studies. And then it finally got into the care that it is now called gender dysphoria. And it is a physical condition, which is what it actually is. So it really has made a huge difference, but a lot of people in the community aren't aware that it's changing. There's some new clinics that are starting up because they, there's a lot of people without insurance and all that need
2: help. Yeah, and I, I also read, I don't know if you coined this term, um, but you use this term, gender gifted community.
1: Yes, thats uh, I don't remember if I was the first one to say it or responding to somebody else who had said it. But we had decided it would be a great way to... Um, get rid of the stigma of being transgender It's like, instead of that, you know, we're not, well, that's kind of weird. You're, no, we're gender gifted. We've been able to see the world from both sides, you know, and a little view into the middle. <laughs> so for those of us who went binary one into the other, either direction, we really have to work to understand the non-binary because we were there, and we didn't like it. But that's where they feel comfortable, where they belong. So I may not understand how anybody could feel comfortable there, but I know that's where they belong, so I wanted to learn more to be able to support them, too. A lot of stuff you have to learn to, to really be an advocate. But you don't have to learn that much to be an ally. All you have to learn is... It, talking to a person.
0: You can hear Sarah Holtz's entire interview with Sally Michelle Jackson at our website peacetalksradio.com. Look for the May 2019 episode. Our episode on peacemaking and the LGBTQ community continues in a minute on Peace Talks Radio. Paul Ingalls. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Today, our correspondent Sarah Holtz is presenting three interviews to shed some light on peacemaking in the LGBTQ community. Next, Anne-Marie Zanzel, who was feeling restless when she decided to go back to school to become a minister. At the age of 44, she was reckoning with the complicated feelings that come from being in the closet. After graduating from Yale Divinity School, she began working as a hospital chaplain for families facing end of life transitions. And while counseling others, she realized it was time for her to make a transformation of her own. Here's Anne Marie with our Sarah Holtz.
3: So I'm somebody who probably questioned my sexuality when I was young. Um, but really didn't know what to do with it because I came from a very traditional Catholic home and we didn't talk about sex, much much less about sexual identity and I got married because it was expected of me to do and and that's what I did. Um, I had children, didn't think about my sexuality much during that time and then when I hit about 40, which is pretty typical for people who come out late in life, um, I started to think about my sexual identity because I, I read an article in, oh, believe it or not, Oprah Winfrey magazine, and it talked about the fluidities of women's sexuality. And at the time, I was like, "Oh my gosh, that was that's me!" Because basically, it talked about, you know, people, women that were married to men and then ended up being with a women, Woman, and I guess for the first time, I had hope. Now, I wish I could say that I came out at 42, but it was actually about 10 years later. um, I took a U-turn, not a U-turn, but a a fork in the road and ended up going to Yale Divinity School at that point and ended up concentrating on a lot of other things. Um, I think my journey in particular was about dissociation, being a lesbian, was sort of the background noise of my life, and I had a restlessness of spirit that Um, is indescribable unless you've had it.
2: So I I also understand that uh, there's a spiritual element to your story as well.
3: So I do believe that um, God has been a big part of my journey to coming out which I know some people are sort of surprised by that. Um, And I just want to be really clear that when I say God, I usually call God the universe or the higher power or whatever because I feel God is a loaded term. And so I I believe in something greater than myself. So the ultimate reality, the universe, God, um, higher power, whatever we need to call that. So the, I think the first most significant thing that happened is that I was at Yale Divinity School. And I, you know, a lot of people who come out later in life are often very good allies because this is the internalized homophobia piece. We're so glad you're gay. We're so happy to support you. You know, the only person that can't be gay is us. And so that's the internalized homophobia piece. So when I was at Yale Divinity School, there was a coming out day um, uh, service, For people who are coming out, and like a little good little ally, I went over to the service, and um, in the middle of the service, I started crying hysterically, because you know, several years before, um, I you know really realized that I didn't have to stay. I had chosen to be straight, but I really needed to be who I was, and so, in the middle of that ceremony, I started crying hysterically, and I realized that I. Truly was gay, but I was going to have to dismantle the life that I had built, which was very complicated with spouse, children, career, home. So, um, fast forward, I worked in hospice, and it was really interesting. The years before I came out, I was working with people who were dying and saw a lot of transition um, in going from living to dying, which is a process for people. And I had a patient, her name uh, was Mary, and she lived in a a faded industrial town in uh, Connecticut and in senior housing. And she was one of those people that sign on to hospice and think that um, they're going to die the next day, (laughs) because you know, she signed on the dotted line. And she didn't. And she was hanging around hanging around and hanging around and she was growing more and more frustrated and she said I feel like I have been waiting for something my whole life and I don't know that really really struck me and It sort of stayed with me and a month or two later Mary died and unfortunately, you know, I'm just gonna say um, 99.9% of all hospice deaths are very peaceful Mary's unfortunately was not and so I held her while she died and I told her she could go and um, I said you can go you can go and she did so after my ordination I told my therapist uh, the story of Mary um, because you know that's what you do in therapy and I had some serious PTSD from that I told her what Mary had said to me that I feel like I've been waiting for something my whole life And she, of course, being the consummate therapist said, so Emery, what are you waiting for? And you know, it was funny because it took me about a minute to answer because it was one of those sacred moments in your life that I knew if I spoke it out loud this time, that everything was gonna change. I just knew. And um, I said to her that night, I think I'm gay. Um, and I kept trying to, I think now in, re- in retrospect, trying to fill that void, and so that's why I've done a lot of different things in my life, um, but finally when I accepted the fact, I call it an acknowledgement, when finally I acknowledged the fact at 52 <laughs> that I was a lesbian, that's when I started the third and final time of my coming out. It was a really long process for me, and it is for a lot of people
2: yeah and and what did that process look like after you made that acknowledgement
3: you know it was difficult because when i finally you know started the i I guess i'll call it the official coming out process um i realized that um my a lot of times typically um, women who are married will you know try to figure out with their husband a way to stay together especially if they have you know, a peaceful marriage or a loving marriage, you know, there's all types of marriages. And so they spend some time trying to figure out, uh, we spend some time trying to figure out how to stay married, because we can't think outside the box of not being married. And so it took me about six months between the time I uh, officially came out. And I ended up realizing that I couldn't stay married. It's very difficult to have a mixed orientation marriage. And so I ended up, um, my husband and I ended up getting divorced. Um, So it was just sort of a confluence of events that caused a lot of upheaval in our family's life.
2: And how have things come back together for you? Well,
3: I think it has come back together is that slowly, um, I'm partnered now, I have been with um, my partner for uh, two and a half years. And when you've come out yourself, it is really important to find other people who understand that process. So when I came out, I Googled late-life lesbian and found, believe it or not, a, a online support group that is secret, founded by a woman here that lives in Nashville. And I found support within that group, and that was amazing. So when you listen to another pe- person's story, you are able to hear your own. I truly believe that. And so when I started to read other people's stories and other women's stories of their struggles with their sexuality, I was like, Oh my goodness I'm not alone and so after the dust settled <laughs> um, I uh, started to provide support for women online in a smaller version um, our secret group is is large now it's like 1600 members when I joined uh, three years ago, it was 185. So that's tremendous growth if you think about it. So we decided. Um, I work with the person who's the founder of this of this group. Uh, we decided that we needed to do more uh, smaller groups because, you know, sometimes you can get lost in a group of 1,600, and sometimes you need to have a more personal connection. I found that when I was coming out. Um, The online world was wonderful for a couple of months, but after about three or four months, I was like, "Oh my gosh, I need, you know, inhum, you know, human community, in-person community." And so, um, what I do now is I provide support groups for women coming out later in life. I start about one every other, about every three or four weeks, and um, it is a way for women who are coming out to share your story we talk about internalized homophobia which is a huge piece in the later lighted life community later in life is very self-defined so for your generation because you are in your late 20s you would be considered late in life but for my generation, I'm in my mid-50s. Late in life is, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. I have, I know I have gay friends that have come out at like 30. They're in their 50s now, but came out in 30, at 30, 31, 32, and they consider themselves late in life. So my age range, believe it or not, goes from 28 to 72.
2: I understand that uh, your ministry today is uh, pretty LGBTQ-focused, Um what advice do you have for other faith communities that um, are working, doing that hard work of um, becoming more inclusive?
3: So I belong. I'm a minister in the United Church of Christ, which is referred to as the UCC. So the UCC has something called the Open and Affirming designation. It's called ONA. So what does that mean? A lot of churches are open. So, you know, you're a a gay person or a a trans person or somewhere in the LGBTQ family and you go to church and they're open and they're welcoming to you. But affirming is a different story. Um, Affirming, what kind of God language do they use? Is it exclusively male? Because if it's exclusively male, then I don't know how that it's affirming to women. Um, Is God referred to other than father? Also too, how do they treat you and your partner when you come in? Can you hold hands in a community? That's affirming. Affirming as well is to really, um, especially around gender, I think that's where we get tripped up a lot of the times. I'll tell you a sweet little story. So I belong to an LGBTQ church, Um, the church it's in Nashville. So, you know, we're all learning. You know, we're all learning, and um, we were singing uh, a song once, a hymn once, and the music leader said, "Okay, all the women sing," and and then all the men sing, and I was like sitting in my uh, the pew, I was like, "Oh, we can't." divide that way, because we are an LGBTQ affirming church. And so we have to be very careful about dividing among lines of gender, because we have all varieties of gender attending our church. So it's really, really small stuff. Uh, We recently had a transgender woman who came to our church, and she asked us if we had a gender neutral bathroom. And actually, we didn't yet. And so we started to put in a gender-neutral bathroom.
2: Um, yeah, so I'm wondering about the, the future of your work. How do you see um, your work transforming in the future, and what are your hopes uh, for ways that this work can grow? I think how I will go
3: forward is that I will continue to be there for the people who are coming out later in life i will continue to run support groups but a wise friend of mine once said to me just do what's in front of you and the rest will unfold so i see myself as always being a very strong advocate for not only um the later in life community within the gay community but also as a as an advocate for the gay community too Um, And I think ultimately what I want to do is help parents because I'm a mom of four kids. Uh, They're 16 to 27. And I understand what it's like to have children. I understand what it's like to live in a straight community. And I understand what the expectations are for children a lot of times. And so I really would love to help parents accept their kids by I hope someday that they can hear my story and several other you know other women that I and men that I know and our struggles with our sexuality because when they hear those stories most parents who love their children and are not struggling with their own religious stuff will say oh my goodness I don't want that for my child I just don't so I think in the end, I would really love to be able to be with parents and and families as they struggle to accept their kids. And I just want to say that um, this is about peace. I feel that when I came out, that the missing piece that was Anne-Marie fell into place. And I have heard from others as well that women that come out later in life, pre-coming out, have rates of anxiety and depression at 65 to 70 percent and a lot of them once they come out those things just go away. I still have sadness you know my sadness comes over me but it's not the same as before and I do believe my ordination really had a huge hand in my coming out um, because everything happened after it. And, you know, I told a friend of mine of this, who was a minister, minister, and he said to me, well, of course, because ordination is, you're being ordained as your whole self. And I do believe that the universe said, okay, Emory, it's time that you acknowledge this piece of yourself that you really have been ignoring, and you need to put it in place.
0: You can hear Sarah Holtz's entire interview with Anne-Marie Zanzel on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Sarah has another interview for us in a moment as our episode on peacemaking in the LGBTQ community continues in a minute on Peace Talks Radio. It's Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You're listening to a three-part program about peacemaking in the LGBTQ community. I'm Paul Ingalls, along with correspondent Sarah Holtz. Our final guest works for a national organization called Transilient that shares stories from transgender and gender non-binary individuals. The project represents LGBTQ people of all ages, but it underscores how young people coming out today are looking beyond a binary framework of gender and sexuality. Many outside of the queer community still struggle to accept a non-binary vision of identity. Transilient works to resolve this conflict by posting humanistic portraits of everyday life. For example, here's a clip from an interview the group did in 2017 with a transgender soldier at Fort Irwin National Training Center.
3: Will you start by telling us your name? Which one? (laughs) Uh, Your preferred name. Okay, um, I'm Derek Davis. Cool. And uh, what's your military position? So I am E4 and I am a 68 Romeo, which is a food veterinary inspection. Oh, cool. What do you like most about serving your country in that way? It kind of goes
2: back to family for me.
3: I really like that it's a family oriented kind of place and... When you put this uniform, you're just proud of what you're representing pretty
0: much. It's a good feeling. The group's outreach coordinator, Sierra Debro, is a recent college graduate and a non-binary individual who's now based in Jackson, Mississippi. They're also an education fellow at the Goldring-Roldenberg Institute of Southern Jewish Life. To begin the conversation with Sarah Holtz, Sierra explained the meaning behind Transilience hashtag, More Than Trans
4: people are more than just one facet of their lives. Basically, we aim to normalize the transgender experience, to humanize transgender and gender nonconforming people, and to help people realize that we are people too and beyond that that we have so much to offer beyond just talking about our own pain, suffering, oppression, and the physical changes that we go through.
2: Yeah, that that is one thing that I really noticed when I was going through the website and the interviews is that There's so many moments in both the videos and the photography, these just quiet or subtle moments of joy. And I wonder if you could speak to the importance of that with the project.
4: Yeah, so I work a lot in transcribing the interviews and um, looking at the photos and trying to find the best parts to share with the public because we really have 30 minutes to an hour with each participant and each person that we interview, which is a really great opportunity. And because we're mostly a media-based and text-based organization, it's a little harder to share that. So transcribing these things, I often get to hear those silences in between conversations and the quietness between it all. And it's great that you were able to see that and it was able to be shown even when we don't have those quiet parts, you know, broadcasted, because it, to me, shows that while trans identity and gender nonconforming identity, gender identity, are often seen as these loud disruptive things to the system of uh, gender binary and the patriarchy, it's also just about being a human being.
2: transilians focus on inclusivity also helps to break down divisions within LGBTQ communities. According to Sierra, this vision of restorative justice is a main tenet of the group's shared values.
4: So I think a lot of times um, when we think about gender identity and sexuality, we think about a very stereotypical white person and typically middle class has access to information where they can explore their gender identity. Uh, they have the financial ability to do that. They have an accepting background or if they don't have an accepting background, they've found their group or, they've found, or their family and their friends have come around and changed their minds because they know this one person. And I think that's a really damaging image to have in our heads because while that's the experience for some and perhaps for many, it's not everyone's experience. Um, And I think that it's damaging because then you have people who don't fit that description saying, is that me? Am I somebody who who can explore my gender identity or is that just a white middle-class fad? Um, And I think it's also damaging because then it's gatekeeping within the community of you are trans enough, you're not trans enough. Um, You decided to transition and therefore you're officially transgender as opposed to people who don't transition. Um, And that's their choice and a totally valid part of their identity and often is seen as not being uh, trans enough. And I think restorative justice comes into play when we think about the other aspects of identity that go into a person. And how do we treat all these disparate parts of identity and put them into one category where we really think of someone as a whole person as opposed to just one part of their identity at a time?
2: The idea of looking beyond a binary framework of gender is unfamiliar to many and confusing to some. Sierra shared how they approach these often challenging conversations.
4: So it's something that um, I constantly think about and have to work on because In my office, I'm out to my coworkers, but I travel a lot for work, and I'm not necessarily out in all of my communities, um, just because, for me, I'm going to a community for two to three days at a time, three times a year, and I don't want to push my identity or my politics onto another community, but I still want to be authentically myself. So with the communities I am out to, um, actually, some of the educators and rabbis and community members... Help me do that work. So, they will sometimes correct someone else if they use incorrect pronouns. Or, um, if we're talking about gender differences in a Torah portion, they might ask, okay, so what might this be like if this isn't a difference between men and women, but between human experience, and bring up the idea of gender there. Um, in communities I'm not out in, I see it more as an opportunity for them to get to know me. And then, if they Google me, or if they hear this on the, on, on the radio or on a podcast, they'll realize, I know Sierra, and I know who they are, and hopefully they don't see me any differently, because at that point, they've known me for a year, sometimes two years, and I think it's a really awesome thing for someone to get to know me first, and then learn about my gender identity. It's interesting, because I've never had anyone in my life who's been a prof- in, a professional, in my professional field who is also out as trans or gender nonconforming. It's sort of a brave new world. Um, I'm trying to determine how often do I correct people? Um, How do I talk about gender and sexual diversity? And when is it appropriate, when is it not? A lot of times um, I've had questions that people ask me and I personally don't mind uh, answering any questions about my experience, but I try to explain to them that while I don't mind if you're asking me about what my daily life is like, Someone's identity is very personal. It belongs to them. It's not necessarily that person's obligation to tell you anything about themselves. Just like it's not and it's not a cis person's obligation to talk about their medical history or their personal experience or their trauma or their successes. No one is obligated to share information about themselves without their consent. And so, I really value placing prioritizing the human experience first and talking about How's your day? How's this? How's that? And having that relationship. And then if the person's comfortable, maybe they'll bring it up and, and asking, is it okay for me to ask you about something related to your gender identity? And if the person says no, being very respectful of that.
2: The male-female paradigm runs deep within society, but it's something young people are starting to question and even unlearn. Still, the idea that gender can be non-binary or fluid can be perceived as a threat to the status quo. I asked Sierra to share their take on why this is.
4: I think it's something that we're taught where we're very, very young, before we even know how to conceptualize gender on our own, even as infants. Um, That gender is male and female, and even if you're born intersex, that oftentimes there's a gender that's forced onto you, and it's something that's so ingrained in our society that anything that's different um, sort of becomes, not necessarily feared, but unknown. And not knowing what to do with the systems we have in place is really scary. Um, thinking, f- for example, from a medical perspective, um, how to treat patients who are non-binary when they have a certain sex and, certain se- and for example, what are women more likely to uh, develop or more at risk for? What are men more at risk for? And then how do you talk to somebody who identifies as neither but still might have a higher risk for certain illnesses or diseases. Um, And just changing that language is really, really tough because language is really the only thing that we have to define ourselves by. Um, I think also it is sort of threatening in a way to certain types of feminism in a way because I've heard a lot of the future is female and that's wonderful and I hope that the future is more female and that there is more access for women and for girls. But for me, I like to say that the future is non-binary is beyond gender and I feel like that's threatening because if that's the future a lot of people think that means you know we're all going to dress in gray suits and have the same haircut and it's something that I've heard um, that you know we're all going to look the same Um, but I really think that gender is more playful than that and that it it's so much more than that so I think An unknown leads us to thinking what is the worst case scenario? What is, what if I'm doing everything wrong? And what if everything I know about myself is wrong? What if everything I know about my friend or my partner or everyone or my child? What if everything I know about this world is different? And instead, I think the focus needs to be more on it's okay if one part of my life is different, and let's step back and take as much as we can, our personal feelings about us and ourselves out of this and say, okay, so if it makes someone more comfortable, and if someone is more comfortable using they, them pronouns, is it more important to me that we are being typically grammatically correct, or that I'm making someone feel welcomed, loved, included, and valid as the person that they are?
2: Transilience online stories have impacted trans and non-binary folks on both sides of the screen, interview subjects and followers alike. As the group's outreach coordinator, Sarah often gets to hear firsthand what people take away from these narratives.
4: So a lot of people are surprised that um, we don't focus on transition. I think a lot of media focuses on the nitty-gritty process of how does one get top surgery? What does that look like? Did you have the surgery? Have you transitioned? And seeing that as a necessity for the trans experience. And by taking that out of the equation entirely, it sort of shifts the focus from that being a necessity and more makes it a part and an option, but not the focus of trans people's lives. A lot of times we get messages or comments saying, wow, this is so amazing. Like I didn't know there were people who had stories like mine, or I didn't know that people wanted to hear stories like mine, and sort of creating a space on the internet uh, where people can talk about their own identities or even just hear about their own identities, see someone who's like them. And it's really liberating because, at least for me, like I haven't met any other trans people in Jackson, Mississippi since I've moved there and I've lived there for two years. And in terms of the people who are not part of the trans community who reach out to me, one thing that's really surprised me is that it's been so overwhelmingly positive. I think we've had one or two negative comments and I think one of those is more coming from a place of curiosity and question than a place of negativity and judgment. I expected going in that you know there's going to be a lot of judgment, a lot of difficult conversations and reframing because that's just what you see in the world. That's how you see trans identity presented is that it confuses people and it's a new fad and all these other things, which it isn't. Um, It goes back all the way throughout history and multiple cultures that people identify as a gender other than what they were assigned at birth or that people reject the gender binary. Um, so I was expecting a lot of that because it's what I've seen before, both on TV and in movies and in my own life. Um, but it's been so overwhelmingly positive that it really is a, it's a bright spot. It's, it's a really bright spot in a time when the world is not always so bright for trans people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm especially curious about that idea that you were describing of people's perception that it's some kind of new fad. What do you think that's about? Can you unpack that?
4: I think whenever there's something that's different, that's coming up in multiple ways, um, whether it's sexuality and being open about sexuality, whether that's who you're attracted to or how you express your sexuality, or if it's gender and gender identity, while there's always a new way to express things, that's the beauty of being human and communicating and having access to language, I think that what's changed is our openness to things, but also that Western American culture has become more open to things. I think that uh, if you look at various other cultures, and I don't want to step on any toes and talk about a culture that I'm not 100% familiar with, but I know for a fact that in many different cultures there are Expressions of gender that are beyond a binary or that play with gender in a really playful, creative way, um, and it adds to spirituality. Even in Judaism, there are multiple uh, gender identities, and whether or not that's something that we talk about is different. But we often t- uh, use male language to talk about God, but there's also female language to talk about God. And there's an idea from a few rabbis that I've read that if we are created in the image of God, which is from the story of creation, trans and gender non-binary people exist, then aren't they also created in the image of God? And therefore, wouldn't God be beyond our human concept of gender and gender identity?
2: Along with being an LGBTQ advocate, Sierra also organizes within Jewish communities as an education fellow. I was curious about the particular challenges and points of growth involved in merging these two areas of their life.
4: A couple years ago, I was describing my career aspirations to uh, one of my professors, and I, at the time I wanted to go to rabbinical school and have a master's in social work. And I knew it was possible because I knew rabbis who had masters in social work. Um, and I said, I want to be a rabbi who helps create Jewish spaces that are accessible for people who with disabilities, with people of various gender identities, sexualities. I want to create those kinds of educational opportunities that are inclusive. And I was told, that's really noble of you, and good luck. And not in a patronizing way. My professors at the College of Charleston were all honestly very helpful, but basically told me, take it one step at a time, and you shouldn't go for all of it at once, Um, which I think is helpful and good advice. um, But I get bored doing one thing at a time, so I wanted to do everything at once. Um, And I think one great way of breaking it down is That I'm Jewish, I'm bisexual, I'm gender non-binary, and all of those things are part of me. And for other people, people have disabilities, people have different sexualities, different gender identities, different religions, um, different cultural backgrounds, and all of that comes together to create a whole human being, multiple whole human beings. So if that can exist in our world, why can't that exist in our spaces as well?
2: Traditional faith communities have not always been welcoming to queer individuals, and Sierra says that their Jewish community was no exception. Still, it has grown in leaps and bounds as gay and trans identities have become more visible.
4: So I've seen a big change over time. Um, When I was in elementary school and middle school, it was my belief, just based on my experiences, that Judaism was not inclusive of people of different sexualities. Didn't have any concept of gender at that time in terms of beyond male and female and gender binary, I thought that you had to be straight to be Jewish, and therefore I had a hard time in my synagogue. Um, And over time, I've seen that not all conservative synagogues are like that, that not all synagogues are like that, that there are so many different organizations and synagogues throughout the United States that if they were all the same, then it would be a quite bland world for Judaism, and also for the rest of us. Um, And I've seen a lot more acceptance. I think also in places like Jackson, Mississippi, Charleston, South Carolina, et cetera, people are largely accepting, but they don't know what they don't know. And so that's a big area for growth and challenge because sometimes people don't know what questions to ask. They don't know if they're being inclusive because they think they're being inclusive. They're doing everything they would do to include anyone that they know. But if they don't know someone who's trans or somebody who is a Jew of color or has a disability, then maybe they don't know how to make the building or the programs that they lead accessible.
2: What part of working with Transilient would you say brings you the most joy?
4: I think it's learning about people. Um, I think, for me, the storytelling is what, draw, what drew me to the organization and it's what keeps me staying and wanting to be a part of it. Um, Even though I haven't been able to go on tour with uh, the Transilient team, I feel like I know so many different people and that I've been been able to be a part of their story just because I've been able to help share it. Um, And also just, it's helped me in terms of learning the value of being able to sit back and be quiet and listen before speaking up because I'm not there to speak up instead. Um, so it's really awesome that I get to practice those skills of sitting back, listening, let someone else tell their story, um, which I think is so valuable to building bridges and talking about uh, restorative justice and peace and things like that because oftentimes we're thinking about what we want to say next and not what the other person has to say and how that might impact what we think. So I think the, the best part of me is just being able to sit and listen and share later and share their words as they say them, as opposed to someone else's interpretation of who a person is.
0: That's Sierra Debro Outreach Coordinator for Transilient, a national organization that shares stories from transgender and gender non-binary individuals. You can hear Sarah Holt's entire interview with Sierra at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also find transcripts, pictures, more links and resources. All of our previous shows going back to 2002 are there, as is a button you can click on to support our efforts with a donation. We thank donors like George and Sherry Coinas, Betsy Christensen in honor of her late parents, John and Audrey, a spinal health and movement center in Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Nob Hill neighborhood. Thanks also to KUM at the University of New Mexico and the Albuquerque Community Foundation Tides Fund. Nola Days Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Sarah Holtz, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.